You might have heard Colorado had an election on Tuesday. A select few of you may have even participated in it. Yes. And for those who did, they were definitely not in the mood for new statewide changes. Proposition 119? Nope. Proposition 120? Rejected. Amendment 78? Get it out of here. Is that your New Jersey (laughs) coming out (laughs) accent? Okay. So what conclusions can we draw, if any, from Tuesday's election here in Colorado and the national scene? To find out, you'll have to keep listening. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Berkland, here with my colleagues, editor Megan Verley. Good to be here. And public affairs reporter Andy Kenny, who is back at CPR from parental leave. I'm back. Just to be clear, the baby's like a year old now, but I waited until after the election and then until after session to actually take my leave. That was really nice of you. And I have a list of about 4,000 stories I'm going to be assigning to you after this taping. Oh, well, it's good to be back. (laughs) So uh, across the political spectrum, we heard people say that this was a weird election year in Colorado. You had conservative ballot measures not doing well. Mm -hmm. But Republicans did make some gains on local school board and city council races. Yeah, for example, they gained a majority in the Mesa Valley School Board and took, I think it was four seats in the Douglas County School Board as well. And then we had Aurora City Council. And and, and I talked to one Republican who said they didn't expect Republicans to win four seats there and flip all the school boards that they did flip. You know, I think one thing we were wondering about ahead of the election was how much kind of the hot-bloodedness at the school board meetings was going to turn into to turn out in the polls. And at least in Douglas and, and Mesa County, it sounds like it kind of did. Yeah, it shows that that power of education as an issue seems to be quite potent here as well, and not just as we've heard in Virginia, where it was a key issue in the governor's race, which Republicans won. I think that means that next year we could see even more of this in the statewide races. I mean, we've got governor, we've got all the the state legislative races. I think we better be kind of turning our focus towards education issues. Right. And that's something we've seen debated at the statehouse for quite a few years on curriculum and the parental role in education. And Republicans are saying, look, what happened in Virginia could be a sign of what's to come in Colorado because there are some demographic similarities in terms of affluence, growing suburbs, Mm -hmm. uh, were both states that went blue under Trump. But um, how much can you necessarily draw from that? Because Democrats Mm. have a different perspective. And well, I think it's fascinating because uh, what I've seen are Republicans saying, hey, look, next year is going to be really good for us if we get the right candidates, which has been a problem here sometimes even in wave years, or maybe even especially in wave years. And then Democrats in their like public statements are like, no, we're super different. And then they're sending out these emails. We've seen them from Joe Nagoose. We've seen them from Governor Polis being like, uh, Virginia's terrifying. Give me money. Like, and I'm you got to think there's maybe they're a little exaggerated, but there's got to be an element of truth in there. I think after an election result like that, you've got both parties standing back and saying, well, maybe, maybe in 2022. I talked to Democratic Speaker Alec Garnett of the State House, And what, what he said is, he, he thinks a big part of what was in play in Virginia is you, you have a state that's right next to Washington, D.C. And with the gridlock in D.C. right now, he thought it was somewhat of a referendum on that. He did say he sees Colorado as different. And then also, we don't know what the political climate's going to exactly be like next fall in terms of 
what moves through Congress, what's going on with COVID. Things are changing so much. Mm. Even one Republican I talked to said that, especially in Colorado, he doesn't think there was enough on the ballot that we can draw big conclusions about the mood of the electorate here. Nationally, the mood of the electorate is clearly pretty sour. Like Even in blue New Jersey, you know, the Democrats still won the governor's race, but you could see those suburbs turning. And like you said, we'll see how much that overall angst about economic issues, education, et cetera, translates here in Colorado next year. I would imagine that if Democrats are paying close attention to, well, Virginia in particular, maybe we will hear the word Trump less next year. Mm -hmm. I mean, there seems to be a narrative developing that making Trump front and center in the attacks on Youngkin did not do a lot. Uh, When it comes to suburbs, I think that'll be really interesting in some of these state house races where the Democrats have run up their margins in the House and Senate in the suburbs. And Mm -hmm. if those trend back, the new map for the state house is pretty friendly to Democrats, but it might not be as friendly as it looks on paper. All right, so let's move on to those three statewide measures. They all failed, but they are still worth talking about because the results were kind of surprising, at least to me. I think what stood out to me is you you didn't have opposition campaigns to any of these three initiatives. Hmm. You know, we've covered a lot of ballot initiatives that there's tons of money spent on both sides. Yeah. And this election, yeah, the proponents raised money, but the opponents didn't. And yet they still failed. So let's explain what they actually are. Um, The first one, maybe the most minor one, was Amendment 78, which was supposed to give state lawmakers control over more types of money. Very exciting. Modifying the budgetary process. And I think there's a good argument to be made here that Colorado voters are possibly increasingly nervous about putting things, especially in the state constitution, where the impacts aren't clear. And opponents, they weren't organized, but they were being interviewed, pointed out that there could be a lot of unintended consequences to this amendment, which the language of it said that the legislature had to use the appropriations process for pretty much every dollar that came into the state. And that's there's a lot of money on autopilot and a lot of money that goes to state agencies and stuff that does not go through that process right now. This was a response by conservative groups in part to the kind of uproar around you know, Governor Polis having such direct authority over how all the relief money for the coronavirus was spent. That's kind of interesting because the relief money for the coronavirus was like the biggest example. Mm -hmm. But their examples were much more about like, hey, the attorney general has all the power to spend settlement money. Do you really want that in his hands? I think having the CARES Act come up actually kind of derailed them a little bit Mm -hmm. because... It was such a clear example of why you sometimes want money to to be exactly Mm -hmm. to be nimble. And so I think you heard from Michael Fields that like, hey, that actually made it a little harder for us to make our arguments. Yeah. Michael Fields, the organizer of this campaign, said that he thought that was probably the most resonant message against his own measure was, uh, you know, Democrats or others arguing actually the state legislature should not be in charge of spending emergency money. And then even though this was an initiative backed by conservatives, generally to Mm -hmm. add more transparency. Some of the Republican voters I talked to were opposed to it because they saw this as like, this is going to give the Democratic legislature more authority. Democrats are in control of state government right now, and they they didn't 
like this initiative for that reason. The Democratic legislature, as opposed to all of the Democratic heads of various agencies and offices. Well, and it's funny because the Democratic head of the Joint Budget Committee told me that he actually thinks uh, this kind of spending should be reformed. He's unhappy with how little transparency there is around it. He was worried about unintended consequences in the language of the amendment. Well, you can see why this didn't exactly ring like a bell for a lot of voters. There was no <laughs> dollar sign on it. You don't get anything out of it yourself. Uh, so it's hard to get people to read through all that ballot language and care enough to vote yes. So shall we move on to Proposition 120? This was the one that surprised me. This would have cut the property tax assessment rate statewide. And Democrats were so concerned about the effects of this because this would have, you know, really bid into the budgets of local governments all across the state. The Democrats were so concerned that they actually passed a law months ago that almost like preemptively tried to take the teeth out of this. It would have essentially like taken it from instead of being a billion dollar tax cut, if the Democrat plan worked and this had passed, it would have only been a $50 million tax cut. That's so fascinating that they, I mean, they really thought that this would pass. You know, voters are just going to vote for a tax decrease. Voters and I, love I, tax cuts. And I, I think mean, it made it more confusing. Values, like everybody's feeling the, who owns a, a home is feeling the pinch on property taxes. Because they've been going up so sharply. So, Benta, what do you think happened? Well, I I think having this law in place that would have changed the implementation of this ballot initiative if it had passed, Mm -hmm. again, add this whole other layer of complexity and confusion. And Republicans I talked to didn't trust that this fully would be a decrease. Um, And some Democrats said that they also think a certain segment of voters didn't want to take money away from things like public schools and actually just fundamentally didn't support a tax decrease. I think it's fully possible that part of this was that voters are getting the message from Democrats and rural Republicans that these property tax cuts hurt. Like it was only, was it last election that lawmakers finally convinced voters to repeal the Gallagher Amendment, which was another one of those complicated fiscal things. I think there's also an argument to be made that property taxes, because they fund local things, we know people are much more positive on local taxes. That's why we've seen local mill levy taxes pass. Whereas like a sales tax cut, statewide sales tax cut or a statewide income tax cut, you know, that money goes straight into the state budget. And we know that people are much less comfortable giving the state money than giving their local governments money. Funnily enough, that's why this measure made so many people nervous is it was a statewide tax cut that would have vastly different effects on different uh, localities. Anyway, worked out swimmingly, I think, for the Democrats and rural Republicans who pass that law to try to stop this from taking effect because now they don't, in my opinion, really have to face any consequences since they can point and say, hey, voters didn't want it anyway. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what the battle around the next tax cut initiative is going Mm -hmm. to be because I don't think that's very far off. Uh, And you've got to think supporters are looking at this and and really checking their wording to make sure the legislature can't swoop in behind them and and try to rewrite things for them. So, Megan, when you say not very far off, do you mean fall of 2022? Most likely. I do try not to think about fall of 2022, but yes, I mean, both 120 and Amendment 78 were put on the ballot by this group, Colorado Rising Action. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's run by Michael Fields. He used to be with uh, the Americans for Prosperity arm in Colorado. And they've been putting all these small government uh, sort of tax lowering things on the ballot. And I believe the next thing they're going after is the statewide sales tax. This was a rare loss for them, actually, at least in the last couple of years, they've done quite well with their ballot measures. So they have promised, Fields has promised to uh, to keep pursuing this. So expect to see a lot more war, fiscal wars at your ballot box. Isn't that exciting? Yay. 
but also with so many other non-budget items on the ballot and the statewide races and a U.S. Senate race, I mean, those items are going to get potentially less attention from voters just by virtue of such a full ballot likely in 2022. True. So while we've got the space, maybe let's give attention to the last of these failed ballot measures. And I think this is another one, too, that surprised me a little bit. Um in how widespread the failure was. This is Proposition 119, and it would have increased recreational cannabis taxes by 5% to pay for after-school programs for underprivileged youth. And that's five percentage points, which is a significant chunk of extra change on your, you know, California dope strain or whatever you're smoking. (laughs) It had widespread support from Jared Polis, former governors from both parties. Mm-hmm. You had prominent Republicans, prominent Democrats. I, I talked to one of the people who was working on that campaign. And early on, you had the Colorado Education Association. And so it seemed like the polling was great. And mm-hmm. OK, yeah, people are going to increase pot taxes to, to help underserved kids. Yeah, because people like funding it. Ed- well, actually, in Colorado, <laughs> education is one of the more popular things to fund, even though it's had its troubles in the past. And, you know, taxes on s- so-called sin taxes, like on cannabis, gambling, nicotine have had a decent track record with voters here recently. I actually, though, wonder if this was sort of a victim of past successes, because it was only a year ago that Coloradans raised the tax on nicotine to fund pre-K. And so I think if you're a voter and you're saying, oh, we, we I voted to tax nicotine last time for kids. Wait, now you want me to tax marijuana for kids? Like, there's not really a, a nexus between the tax and the thing it's spent on. And we just tend to see these a lot at the ballot. Yeah, and there are limited opportunities to increase taxes. So what we heard from the marijuana industry is this would be regressive and hurt low-income consumers. Then the Democratic Party formally opposed it. The Colorado Education Association went from supporting it to neutral. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of concerns on the left of public tax dollars going to after-school programs that could be privately funded. And it creates a government bureaucracy. Yeah, creating a new state program to distribute that money. The Governor Polis appoints those members. Which, again, in the idea that, like, voters might be a little tapped out on this stuff, they just did that last year on paid family leave. Maybe they're kind of tired of creating bureaucracies to to pay for very specific things. I, I also, Benda, you've mentioned something that I think is super interesting, which is the idea that there's only so much you can raise the marijuana tax, and maybe what you raise it for should be more connected to the potential problems being caused by marijuana legalization. Right. Last legislative session, I was covering a bill to address the negative impacts associated with high-potency THC mm-hmm. and youth using that. Mm. And as part of that discussion, there were were talks about increasing taxes to address research and other things associated with highly potent marijuana. The industry supported that. Mm. You know, they said, look, if we're going to increase taxes, we do want it to be linked to a negative impact associated with this product, not something totally seemingly unrelated to that. And so there's that aspect there. Like if you increase taxes so much on this product, what if, and we we know there's going to be other things coming, the state isn't able to address something else associated with cannabis. And just a quick note, there's not a literal hard limit on uh, how high of a tax rate you can put on cannabis. But if you put it too high, you run the risk of uh, embiggening the black market and driving people away from legal cannabis. And also some Democrats just, they want to look at overall education funding fixes. 
And they, they thought this relatively small amount of money, I mean, relatively, was not not a diversion, but just the, the wrong thing to be focused on at this time. I don't think anyone is going to oppose decreasing the achievement gap. And I think people are pretty aware that during the pandemic, that's widened. I have to say, though, uh, and I might make people mad, I do think there's also a little bit of a sour grapes thing here because we've seen statewide tax increases for general education funding go down year after year. So when the education groups come out against a targeted tax where the money doesn't go into public schools, for them to say, hey, we need a big statewide fix on on education funding, it's like you guys keep trying that and voters aren't going for it. I mean, supporters of 119 were saying that, okay, yeah, we do need a bigger fix, but you're saying we can't do this other thing too? Like, why does it mean we can't try to do both? One more point, you know, Again, the sin taxes do a little bit better than other taxes in passing in Colorado, but it's not guaranteed because you still have to overcome the fact that the ballot language begins with shall taxes be raised by however many hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think it takes a really coordinated effort to get that done. And can we talk about a couple of the local cannabis tax increase measures? Oh, yeah. Because you know, when you're talking about a nexus, um, one of them would have increased cannabis taxes for pandemic research and preparedness. Yeah. As a Denver voter, I want to say that that's the thing you hit on your ballot. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> that was the wait, what moment. Yeah, this was one that was in the city of Denver that would have raised cannabis taxes to pay for this pandemic research program at the University of Colorado, Denver. But the funny part was that the university went out of its way to say, uh, we didn't ask for this. We're not taking a position on this. We're not doing anything to publicize this because it was just an out-of-state crypto investor. That's awkward. And Denver voters did not go for it, which, no. I, again, as somebody who follows politics in Denver, I've been wondering when Denver voters were going to stop raising taxes, and this appeared to be a bridge too far for them. <laughs> and that's saying something, right? Uh, meanwhile, in Lakewood, Lakewood also rejected a cannabis tax. That one was interesting because it was supposed to complement the fact that they legalized cannabis sales in Lakewood mm-hmm. just the other year. And this this one was actually better crafted because it was supposed to go toward enforcement and dealing with some of the direct effects. And voters just said, nah. I think, you know, what we're seeing is that this was a year where a lot of voters, at least on the statewide level, just were not feeling comfortable changing state spending in big ways. We do spend a lot of time covering differences that people have and the toxic political culture that exists right now, just because that's the reality on the ground. But people really did come together from very diverse political backgrounds across the state, urban, rural. Boulder County agreed with Weld County. I mean, uh, to reject all of these statewide ballot measures very handily. I mean, Mm. nothing was even close. The unifying force of confusing ballot language. You know, I feel like this is a great transition into the final thing I'm going to jam into this episode, which is an update on redistricting. We, we have put a lot of effort into staying on top of redistricting, and uh, we did hit a kind of big moment earlier this week, right before the election, when we all stopped paying attention. All right, lay it down for us. The state Supreme Court has approved the congressional map. We have a congressional map. The lines are drawn, and uh, the objections were not sustained. 
Yeah. We've talked about it before, but the the new 8th Congressional District is going to be one to watch because that's the swing district. It's highly competitive. And nationally, the House hangs in the balance. So I think that will get quite a bit of attention. We have the first Republican or one of the first Republicans entering in the race, former state lawmaker Lori Sane. She's from Weld County. We have some Democrats in the race. So I know we'll be covering that closely. Yeah, if you're in that eighth in the kind of northern Denver metro, I would get ready for the flyers. They could start any day now. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is the third went in the opposite direction. Prior to redistricting, you know, we, there are all these Democrats jumping in like, hey, maybe the map is going to get more competitive for Lauren Boebert. She's so controversial. Mm-hmm. And this map not only kind of draws out one of her biggest competitors, Carrie Donovan, who sent a very grumpy email after the the Supreme Court ruling. Um, But it makes it like a plus nine Republican district. And so I think, you know, we're going to see all this heat come to the eighth district and leave the third that was looking like it was going to be a really spicy race. I mean, at one point that, you know, everyone got really excited in the political world when Lauren Boebert and Congressman Jonah Goose were in the same district briefly. Really exciting five minutes. But I think um, you're right with Pueblo. I mean, you still have Pueblo, which is you know, more democratic, even though a more conservative democratic area. But and now what you're going to see is that Lauren Boebert's challenges are going to come from Southern Colorado. It sounds like you've got Sol Sandoval mm-hmm. running out of Pueblo. You've got Donald Valdez running out of the San Luis Valley. And so uh, interestingly, this race could shape up to be uh, kind of the two poles of that very, very large district, a mm-hmm. Republican incumbent up uh, in the northwestern part running against a Democrat from the southeastern part. And I would still expect that to get plenty of heat and attention, no matter how uh, <laughs> how tilted the actual makeup of the electorate might be. Well, and we've covered this before, but Lauren Boebert is a national figure, and she's arguably the most prominent Republican in the state. And so Democrats will fundraise off of mm-hmm. things she says, regardless of what district they're in, they've already been doing that. Yeah, she might be their Colorado Trump. I want to go back just for a second to the actual Supreme Court ruling that settled the map, because one thing that was really interesting in it, because this was our first time using an independent commission, a lot of the objections to it said, hey, the commission did not follow the constitutional language in terms of protecting minority groups, Uh, Mm -hmm. like the, the Constitution created a broader sort of interest for minority groups than the Voting Rights Act in the in federal law. The commission argued if you do that, we are going to get challenged in federal court and possibly the entire process gets struck down. And what I found really interesting in the Colorado Supreme Court ruling is they laid down precedent Hmm. that the language in the state constitution is not broader than the Voting Rights Act. Hmm. It's really kind of just a restatement of the Voting Rights Act. And so that that's precedent that will affect how this process is used in coming decades. It went pretty darn smoothly overall. So we'll see if they're able to repeat that in 10 years time next time they do it. Yeah, I, I will note that as soon as that ruling came down, even groups that were objecting got on the bandwagon of saying, hey, this process is still really way better than having politicians. And, you know, we may have been unhappy with the outcome and we don't love the, the interpretation. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of praise for the process. And we have one of the most isolated commissions from lobbying and, and lawmakers because yeah. other states have commissions, but lawmakers can serve on them or lawmakers mm-hmm. appoint the people mm-hmm. or if there's a gridlock, it goes back to the legislature. So we're among kind of the more stringent you know, separation between the legislature and these commissions. So. And from the Supreme Court, if you think about it, because in the last couple of decades, the state Supreme Court has really had a very active role in picking the map. And I think the other thing we saw with this ruling was them being like, hey, guys, we are out of the business. Like, unless you really 
don't follow what you're supposed to do. We are not getting involved. But you know what? Even if they hadn't followed what they were supposed to do, the nonpartisan commission staff would have been the ultimate deciders. Well, it's been a thrill a minute roller coaster ride through all of redistricting season. It really sounds are, like are you being me? sarcastic there <laughs> no, or serious? I'm never sarcastic. And we got we got through an off year election. Now we got a couple months until session starts. Yeah, but our planning meeting for the 22 election is next week. So put that on your calendars. I suppose I'll be there. Yep. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with my colleagues Megan Verlee and Andrew Kenny. We'll be back in your podcast feed sometime soon. So if you're not subscribed, please do. So we'll show up in your feeds when we launch. Until then, this is Purplish from CPR News.